0: Okay, so I will freely admit this is uh, that some people like this lecture, but if you poll everybody, this is consistently the least favorite lecture of the semester. My apologies in advance it is what it is all right so I said that when we learn anatomy, we're basically gonna start from small and work our way to to big. And this is kind of small and basic. This is where we have to start. So um, to be to be totally fair, uh, when we get to a testing situation, the majority of the stuff that I ask you about chemistry is gonna to be towards the end of this lecture. There be a few things that I'll kind of point out that are important here and there. Um, it's not really terribly beneficial for me to drill you on the basics of chemistry, but we do need to cover it, okay? I mean, it's it's part of, it's part of the course outline. But it also, uh, some of these concepts are going to be, they're, they're not going to be immediately important right now, but they're things that you're going to run into later. Especially when we get into things like um, uh, patho later on. A lot of the imbalances, a lot of the disease processes, we talk about what happens uh, as far as um, concentration gradients and chemistry and some other changes like that go. And you, you, ha- you have to understand the basics. So here we are. All okay. right. <laughs> so start at the very, very, very beginning. Okay. So with matter and mass and weight. So all stuff is composed of matter, uh, which means that it occupies some space and it has mass to it. So mass is essentially the quantifiable amount of matter in something, in an object, in a something. Uh, And then weight, uh, people will often interchange mass and weight, but they're really not the same. Weight is basically the mass uh, with the gravitational force. So your weight is going to change whether you're on Earth or whether you're on the Moon or whether you're on Mars or, or whatever. But again, for the most part, our weight is going to be pretty constant. Um, so, when we look up what make, when we look at what makes up matter, what makes up stuff, uh, where we get into the most basic stuff, which is elements. All right? um, so, an element is the simplest type of matter that we have. Uh, there are lots of them. Uh, that's what the periodic table is for. It's basically classifying all the different elements that we know of. Um, <clears throat> the simplest, smallest particle of an element is an atom. Um, now, as, when we find them in nature... Some elements are going to be found uh, in the singular, so as a single atom. Um, Hydrogen will often uh, hydrogen will often do that. Although um, sometimes uh, you'll find them uh, a number of the same atoms of the same element bound together. So, for example, uh, oxygen likes to do that. So, oxygen in nature is most often found as O2. So, it's more than one atom, but they're the same elements; they're just bound together. What are we made of? Well, 96% of the human body by weight is made up of four elements. Oxygen, carbon, hydrogen, and nitrogen. And of course, we're going to use all those in varying combinations. We're going to see a bunch of examples of how we use those in in different components later on. Now, Um, you may have heard of the term uh, carbon-based life form. So we, uh, all life on Earth is essentially carbon-based. Um, there's something special about carbon uh, in that it's, its shape, it's kind of um, tetrahedral, four-sided-ish, and it's the way that it binds to itself and to other elements gives it this unique property that is critical for uh, for um, for life. Okay, so we are considered a carbon-based life form, and then that gets us into the whole idea of our organic chemistry. So we're going to briefly touch on some elements of organic chemistry. Don't worry, nothing too serious. <laughs> okay, so here are some of the other things that you'll find in the body, again the, the top four there, um, oxygen, carbon, hydrogen, nitrogen. Uh, far and away, by weight, uh, we are mostly made up of oxygen, uh, then followed by carbon and hydrogen and then nitrogen, so those four will make up the 96%, and then we have trace amounts of a pile of other things. And and there's more to it than this, uh, but these are just the ones that uh, that's are found fairly fairly often. So we have things, uh, other elements in the body like calcium and phosphorus and sulfur and potassium and sodium and chlorine and magnesium and iron and all sorts of other trace elements that we need in various quantities, just less and less and less of them. All right. So how do these things bind together? Well, we need to remember a little bit about um, what makes up an atom first, (laughs) the very, very basics. In an atom, we're going to have a nucleus. And the nucleus is going to be made of protons and neutrons, which have, uh, as far as the, the subatomic particles, the protons, neutrons, and electrons, the protons and neutrons in the nucleus are the ones that have significant mass to them. Okay? Um, one of those uh, is also going to have charge. So the protons are going to, every proton is going to have what we call, uh, what we call a uh, Positive one charge. So it's going to have a positive charge. Neutrons, which are in the uh, in the nucleus and also have mass like protons, do not have a, uh, a charge. So they are neutral. Hence, neutron. Electrons, uh, for our purposes, we can consider them basically circling the nucleus in orbits. Um, although the reality is that's not really how it works. But let's pretend that it is for simplicity's sake. Uh, so basically, the um, The electrons are going to be uh, circling in orbits around the nucleus, around and around, uh, and they are going to have relatively little mass uh, compared to the protons and neutrons, so a very, very, very small amount of mass. And they are also charged, so they are negatively charged. So the protons in in um, in the nucleus are positively charged, the neutrons have no charge, and the electrons have negative charge. Now what's going to matter as far as when we talk about chemical bonds and binding is electrons. So the basic idea is that every atom is going to have a particular amount of protons, neutrons, and electrons. And um, as you go up in the periodic table, uh, how you classify what the elements are is the numbers of protons and and neutrons in, in uh, in the nucleus of each element. Now there's going to be a corresponding number of electrons that cl- the number climbs as the number of protons climbs. And they're going to be all be circulating around the nucleus. And what matters as far as how each atom interacts with another atom is the outermost layer of electrons. You're going to hear a word in a video we're going to see in a bit. It's called, uh, the word is valence. So a valence electron basically means they are the outermost electrons, the ones that are going to interact with Stuff that they come into contact with, okay. And the general idea is that in order to remain stable, the outermost uh, layer of electrons, the valence electrons, we want it to, uh, uh, we want it to to, uh, to be full, to be complete, to have what's called an octet or uh, eight electrons. So not all atoms in their normal state will have eight electrons in the outer uh, in the outer valence in the outer ring. And so they will interact with other atoms in order to fulfill that, I'm going to say this in air quotes, desire, need, want to fill that outer ring of electrons. It'll hopefully become a little more obvious with the, with the video. We'll get them. Okay. As we climb up the, uh, the, the periodic table, the atomic number is going to be the number of protons in the atom, in the nucleus, and in its natural states, uh, there will be also be an equal number of electrons that match the number of protons. Again, the electrons circulating around the outside. Uh, <clears throat> and again, also in the nucleus with the protons, we're going to have neutrons. No charge, but they do have mass. The mass number of a particular atom is uh, is the number of protons and the neutrons together, so that the particles that have mass. Now, this is, uh, is where we have to... Uh, Starts talking about the the electrons and the in the outer shell again. Okay, so <laughs> there's a lot of words going on here. Um, there's some things that I want you to pick up, um, not just because it's important for chemistry, but because they're terms that you're going to run into all through any kind of uh, scientific endeavor, and especially in anatomy. So, intra-molecular. So, what does intra mean? Yeah. Sorry? Inside. Inside, between. Okay, within. Good. Um, and so essentially, um, when you're talking about intramolecular bonding, uh, you're talking about the, bond, uh, the, the, um, the attachment of two atoms within a molecule. And we're talking about what a molecule is in, in a second. But basically, it's, it's more than one atom attached together. We'll see it another term later, inter, okay, I-N-T-E-R. That's not within, like intra. Inter means between, so between two different things. Okay? Now, we're going to see this term come up uh, a bunch of times later ions. Okay? So, um, in its, well, let's call it, quote unquote, natural state, you have an atom, and it's going to have the same number of protons in the nucleus as electrons uh, uh, circulating around. Okay? So, it's effectively, uh, you have the same number of positively charged, uh, um, uh, excuse me, of positively charged protons versus negatively charged electrons. So as a whole, that atom is going to be electrically neutral. Okay. Now, what can happen, though, is because the uh, outer electrons want to fill up their outer shells, they can sometimes gain or lose electrons. Okay. So if an atom gains an electron to fill its outer shell, right, to make it stable, it has essentially gained a negatively charged Component, right, a negatively charged particle, which means that as a whole, it still has the same number of protons in the nucleus with a posi- with positive charge, but it's gained a negative charge. So overall, that atom is now going to have a net negative charge. Okay, and so because it has an overall net charge that's not zero, we call it an ion. And the same thing happens the opposite way. So if an atom happens to ha- happens to uh, lose an electron from its outermost shell, because that's what is going to make something stabilize, then it has a net positive charge. So it's also an ion. It's just going to be a positively charged ion. We have names for those ions. Uh, a negatively charged ion is also called an anion. Okay? And it could be you know, uh, negatively charged. could be minus 1, minus 2, minus 3 maybe. Uh, and cations. Okay? A cation is a positively charged ion. So again, it could be plus 1, plus 2, whatever. All right. Now, um, as I mentioned, um, be, sorry, um, in this process, if you have ions that have gained or lost electrons and now have a net charge, there is an electrical attraction between them. So uh, negatively charged things are going to be attracted to positively charged things and, and vice versa. So in this way, if we have um, atoms that have become ions and are, have net charge, then we can create these bonds called ionic bonds because a negatively charged ion will be attracted to a positively charged ion. Now, in that way, uh, we also, they're also going to want to make sure that they balance the total overall charge again. So what you're going to see is you're going to typically see um, in something that's ionically bonded, um, For often it's going to be, um, say, something that is a positive, an ion that's a cation that's a positive 1 charge it's going to be attracted to an anion that is a negative 1 charge. Because if you put them together, then that molecule, as they're stuck together, has an overall net neutral 0 charge again. Okay? Same kind of idea. If you have an anion that is negative 2, it's going to be attracted to a cation that is positive 2. And on and on we go. So uh, a really, really simple example of that is sodium chloride. Okay? So table salt. So sodium is going to uh, typically be a positive, uh, a, a plus plus 1-charged cation. And chloride is typically going to be a negative 1-charged anion. So they, they fit together perfectly, um, and they have some particular properties. And they also happen to be quite important uh, for a bunch of stuff that goes on in the human body. And we're going to see sodium and chloride come up over and over and over in uh, other units later on, potentially in different classes. Now there's another kind of bond we need to know about. Uh, that is a covalent bond. So that's when instead w- uh, two atoms are going to bind together, but instead of binding by one atom losing an electron or two, uh, or another atom gaining an electron or two, and then be- being bound together ionically, what happens is they say, "Okay, well, um, I need an electron to be stable, and you need to lose an electron to be stable. Let's just." stay really, really close together and will share our outer electrons. And so in that way, they essentially get stuck together in this covalent bond. Again, think of that valence, that outer shell of electrons. That's where the word covalent comes from. Uh, they're essentially stuck together in this stronger bond that shares those outer electrons to fulfill the filling of the outer valence of both, uh, uh, both atoms. Okay. Again, this will come up in a video. Now. If you have <laughs> two atoms that become bonded together, we call that a molecule. Okay? Um, now, in a covalent bond, sometimes when they're sharing those electrons, right? When they're stuck together in a covalent bond, they're sharing electrons, sometimes the two atoms that are sharing those electrons will share those electrons evenly. So the electrons are basically being pulled um, e- uh, evenly by both atoms in that bonded molecule. Sometimes uh, one of those atoms is going to have a greater attractive force. It's going to be stronger. It's going to want to pull those electrons closer to it than the other atom. Okay? So in that case, it's still a covalent bond. But, it, but in this example, what we call it is polar. Okay? So the electrons are pulled towards one pole, one end of that molecule. I know this seems like a lot all at once, but Again, this is important because um, we have some very, very, very important polar molecules in the body, including water, and water is absolutely critical for just about everything that goes on in the body, and the fact that it is polar is essentially what makes everything possible chemically. Okay. So again, we're going to see a video that hopefully makes this a little more clear. The last thing to remember is that when we say bond, so a, a chemical bond, when two, uh, two substances are attached together in a bond has potential energy in that bond. And it's potential energy because if you break that bond, that energy can be released. And that's important for what goes on in chemical reactions. So we'll see what else uh, we can do with energy uh, in a little bit. Well, let's watch this. My goal in life is to be less boring than this guy, so we'll see how that goes. Oops.
1: In loop, when forming compounds, atoms tend to gain, lose, or share electrons to achieve a stable noble gas electron configuration, an octet of electrons. In ionic bonding, an octet is formed by transferring one or more valence electrons from one atom to another. In covalent bonding, an octet is formed by sharing valence electrons between atoms. Sodium has one valence electron, and fluorine has seven valence electrons. If the one valence electron of sodium is transferred to fluorine, both atoms achieve an octet of electrons. By losing one electron, sodium has a plus one charge. By gaining one electron, fluorine has a negative one charge. An ionic bond is the electrostatic force that holds ions together in ionic compounds. Both fluorine atoms have seven valence electrons. If one electron from each fluorine atom is shared with the other atom, then both fluorine atoms achieve an octet of electrons. This type of bond is called a nonpolar covalent bond. The sharing of electrons between atoms is exactly equal, and the electron density is symmetrical. The distribution varies according to the colors of the rainbow. The mo-
0: what he's basically saying there is that, because um, electrons are constantly in motion, it, they don't look like that model where they're just kind of floating around the, the nucleus. Um, They're constantly in motion. So this model is essentially showing you, on average, where those electrons are going to be found. And so here, basically, one end of this molecule looks uh, the exact same color as the other. Uh, So basically, what you have is an even sharing of the electrons between these two atoms, being here and here.
1: Most electron-rich region is shown in red. In this case, the region between the two nuclei. And the most electron-poor region is blue. Hydrogen has one valence electron and fluorine has seven valence electrons. If the one valence electron of hydrogen is shared with seven valence electrons in fluorine, fluorine achieves an octet of electrons. Note that hydrogen has only two electrons, which is the electron configuration of helium. When bonded to another element, hydrogen will have two electrons in its valence shell. In this bond, fluorine has a greater attraction for the electrons in the bond, a greater electronegativity. Because the electrons spend more time near the fluorine atom, the electron density shifts towards fluorine. The most electron-rich region is red. The most electron-poor region is blue. The result is a greater electron density near fluorine, a partial negative charge, and a correspondingly lower electron density near hydrogen, a partial positive charge. This type of bond, where bonding electrons are unequally shared, is called a polar covalent bond. A polar covalent bond can be thought of as an intermediate between
0: a non-polar covalent bond and an ionic bond. OK. So that last part of it <coughs> is actually what's important uh, as it relates to, uh, to water. Okay, So a similar thing happens uh, to what's going on here in water. It's just a touch more complicated, because there are three atoms instead of two. But in this hydrogen fluoride, what you have here is two atoms that are sharing electrons in their valence shells. But because fluorine has such a greater pull on those electrons, they spend more time at the fluorine end of that molecule as opposed to at the hydrogen end. Does that make sense? they constantly in motion, but spend the majority of the time over on the right. That means that because these atoms are still attached together, right? this is a covalent bond, they, are, they act as one molecule, hydrogen fluoride, that molecule as a whole is going to have one end that the electrons spend more time at. And because electrons are negative, that end is going to be slightly more negative. So it's not a full negative charge like you have in an ion that has gained an electron. And hydrogen over here is not a full positive charge like, like um, an ion has lost an electron. But because they're stuck together, the ion as a whole has different, slightly differently charged ends. Okay? And, uh, and water does the same thing. We're going to see this coming up. Water, being, the chemical formula being H2O, so it's an oxygen with two hydrogen uh, atoms. It does this exact same thing. It just happens to be in a more of a triangle configuration. But the oxygen end is going to be slightly negative because it attracts the uh, the electrons towards it, and the hydrogen, both of them in in H2O, are going to be both slightly positive. Okay. So again, uh, same kind of uh, same kind of information we saw on the previous slide. This is just more um, ions that you find in the body. Um, you don't have to memorize any of this right now. We're going to come across all of these things uh, eventually at some point. There's no sense in memorizing this now. Okay. All right. <clears throat> so, some more terms quickly. Um, so a molecule. A molecule means that you have uh, two or more atoms that are stuck t- stuck together, behaving as a single independent unit. Sometimes that means that they are um, two uh, two atoms of the same type. Sometimes that means there are two atoms of a different type. Okay. So again, for example, uh, oxygen. Right. Oxygen uh, in nature tends to be found as O2. So it's an oxygen atom bound to another oxygen atom. That makes a molecule. Um, but, even, uh, but they're both of the same element, O2. Okay? Now, very, very often um, in a molecule with, with two atoms bound together, instead of being the same uh, element for both atoms, they will be different elements. Super, super, super common. So again, water is, our kind of st- is a good straightforward example. In that case, there are three atoms all bound, stuck together, acting as one, in one uh, complete unit. Uh, but we have two atoms of hydrogen and one atom of oxygen. So there is technically another word for that. If you have a molecule, so atoms, multiple atoms stuck together uh, that behave as a single unit, but uh, those atoms are not all of the same element, as in the case of water and many, many, many uh, um, uh, combinations. Uh, It is a molecule, but we also call it a compound. So a compound, by definition, means there is a stuck together molecule, but has more than one element. Uh, Contained in it. All right, (coughs) now intermolecular forces. Okay, so we're talking about between molecules. So we have um, uh, again a molecule being something where there is two or more atoms stuck together, and behaving as a single unit. So again, let's use uh, uh, let's use the example of water. Inter. I-N-T-E-R, not intra. So intra is within, inter is between. So intermolecular forces mean the forces that are interacting between two different molecules, okay? Now, um, the important example that we're going to just touch on here uh, is the one that relates back to water again, okay? So it's, something, it's, a, it's a weak, attractive force. Um, called uh, an electrostatic force that is going to create what's called a hydrogen bond. So this is talking here about the slight charges that we were referring to earlier. So when you have a molecule that acts as one unit, and you have one atom of that molecule here, this is the oxygen molecule of water, and these are the hydrogens, the the oxygen atom is pulling the electrons in that molecule more strongly towards its end than the hydrogen is pulling it towards their ends. So the electrons spend more time over here in the red area because it's pulling them stronger. And remember, electrons are negative. So that end of the molecule towards the oxygen is going to be slightly negatively charged. And the ends over here, the white ones, where the hydrogen atoms are, it has a weaker force that's attracting those those negatively charged electrons. So those ends of that molecule are going to be slightly more positive. And that seems like, okay, fine, whatever. But what happens is that gives oxygen, or that gives water one of the really um, one of the, the, the really important properties that it has, and it's what dictates a lot of what goes on uh, and why it is allowed to be uh, what's called a solvent and create solutions. Essentially, it means you put a whole bunch of water molecules together and they'll have these weak forces interacting. Between different molecules of water. Okay, so this molecule of water is going to interact with this molecule of water and all the other molecules that are around it through these weak forces. So again, negative charges being attracted to positive charges and vice versa. The same thing applies for those slight or, or, or um, yeah those slightly charged ends of that molecule. So the slightly positively charged end of this water molecule, where the hydrogen lives, is going to be attracted to the slightly negative ends of a different water molecule. Remember, this is, these are intermolecular forces, so uh, forces that are attracting different molecules together. Okay, So that right there is called a hydrogen bond. That's all we need to know for now. Uh, and it's super important as it relates to why water uh, acts the way it does. Okay. Um, And one of the important things that we're concerned about is this solubility. Okay? Because we're going to talk about shortly uh, solutions. Okay, that's one of the the topics coming up. So solubility is is basically the ability of one substance to dissolve and become uh, completely surrounded by another. Okay? In in a uniform mixture, in a uniform way. And so basically um, this is going to happen in a couple different ways. And, and the reason that some things are soluble in water and some things are not relates essentially to their charge and how they interact with these hydrogen bonds. Okay? So some things are going to really readily dissolve in water. Uh, again, table salt is a great example. Okay? When you take table salt made of sodium chloride and you put it in water, the, um, the, uh, the sodium and the chloride are going to really quickly break apart. Okay. The sodium will be a cation, which means it's positively or negatively charged? Positively. positively. Perfect. And the chloride will be an anion, a negatively charged ion. And what's going to happen is they're essentially going to spread out as far away from each other as they can and become engulfed and surrounded by the many, many, many uh, water molecules that are going to make up the solvent part of that solution. <laughs> okay, so effectively this is what's going to happen. You're going to have that positively charged sodium cation is going to essentially be attracted to the slightly negative ends of all these water molecules okay and the, the negative chloride anion is going to be attracted to all the slightly positive ends of other water molecules and this is going on all throughout this entire mixture okay so this is essentially the chemical explanation for what happens when you take crystallized salt, and you drop it in a glass of water, and you stir it around, and it looks like it's disappeared. Okay? It's all still in there. It's taken a different form. If they're not bound together, so they don't no longer have that crystallized solid structure. They're separated apart. They've become what are called electrolytes. And they are essentially all mixed through the, the water in this way. Okay? So they have become dissolved. So <clears throat> not all things will, will dissolve in water. And, and, uh, and, and the reason that some don't is, again, because water is a polar substance. Okay? There are other, um, other uh, um, substances that you can make solutions out of that are non-polar, um, and uh, this speaks to uh, why some things will dissolve in water and some things won't. So other things that are polar, for example, like uh, sugar, glucose. Okay? Uh, chemical formula for glucose is C6H12O6. So does glucose dissolve in water? It does. It does, right? It's polar, so it will dissolve in the polar substance that is water. You'll probably know that fats, right, oils, don't dissolve in water. If you ever taken, um, see, made a um, a vinaigrette, right? So you've got the you've got uh, um, the vinegar, which is water based, and then you've got um, olive oil or something like that. And you pour them together, and if you give them enough time, they will separate apart. Right? It's because fat, oil, is nonpolar. And so it won't get dissolved and remain in solution with a polar solvent like water. It just won't. It can be dissolved in other kinds of solvents. There are nonpolar solvents, things like alcohol and some other things, that can dissolve those kinds of nonpolar molecules, but water won't do it. Okay? <coughs> All right. Another term that you're going to run into, as I used it a second ago, electrolytes. Uh, Electrolytes are essentially mean you have um, ions, so positively charged cations and negatively charged anions that have been dissolved and pulled apart, so dissociated in water, how I described that, say, for example, salt will dissociate and split the sodium from the chlorine and mix in with all the, the polar water molecules. When that happens, they're now called electrolytes. Uh, Electrolyte essentially, by definition, means that they are going to remain a positively or negatively charged ion in solution, so in the water. And they have the ability to conduct electric current. And this is actually really important for a pile of things that go on in the body. So there are a number of, of, uh, of tissues in the body that are electrically active. And the really obvious examples that come to mind are muscle and nerves. When we get to the nervous system, we're going to talk about one of the first things we'll talk about is action potentials, and it'll take a while, and it will be painful. By the end, you're going to understand what's happening uh, at the cellular level in conduction of electricity uh, along a nerve, and it all has eventually uh, has to come back to uh, the uh, the ions, the electrolytes that are dissolved in the solution that makes up the cells and all the fluid around it. Now, um, we don't need to go into any more detail than that for now, so we'll keep it fairly simple. Um, of course, keeping in mind that if there's electric current moving in the body, we have the means and reason in a lot of cases to detect it. Okay, so I'm sure you've seen examples of that before. Uh, an ECG is a great example. So an ECG or electrocardiogram is where you place leads or pads on the uh, on the surface of the chest, and you're measuring the electrical activity that's going on underneath. In this case, the sum electrical activity of what of what's happening in the heart. And that's a, there's a, a, a bunch of very 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 important reasons why we're going to want to be able to monitor that. You can do the same thing with muscle activity. You can do the same thing with brain activity, and a number of other you know really clinically. Beneficial things. <clears throat> okay, So <laughs> this takes us to chemical reactions. So in a reaction, you're going to have atoms or ions or molecules or compounds that are going to interact with each other in order to change, break, reform chemical bonds. Okay, um, In any chemical reaction, we're going to have uh, the reactants that go into the, the, uh, the reaction. And what comes out the other end are the products. The so reactants interact and produce products that are different than what the reactants originally were. Uh, two primary uh, kind of classifications: we have synthesis reactions, which basically means you're taking a bunch of smaller things and putting them together to build bigger things. Okay. Um, as far as inside the body goes, we call those types of reactions anabolic or anabolism. Anabolic means building up. Okay. Uh, when people hear the word anabolic, they usually think of steroids, right? anabolic steroids. Um, it is simpler than that. Anything where you're, you're taking uh, smaller uh, reactants and putting them together to make larger products is a synthesis or an anabolic reaction in the body. Okay? The other end of it is decomposition reactions or catabolic reactions, catabolism. So in the body, catabolism or anything that's catabolic means you're taking bigger substances and you're breaking them down. So for example, we're going to break them down in order to release something that we need. Okay? So bigger things, turning them into smaller things. Now all of this is going on in you know, both ends at uh, 24 hours a day in all corners of your body. Okay? There's reactions going on all the time. We're going to learn about a whole bunch of them in some capacity or another eventually the sum total of all these reactions going on in your body, all the anabolic building up and all the catabolic breaking down, add them together, that is your metabolism. Okay? So metabolism is the sum total of all the chemical reactions that's going on in your body at any given time. Okay? Now, it takes us back to energy. So energy, um, we're going to try to keep it as simple as we can. Um, energy has the capacity to do work. Energy can can neither be created nor destroyed, but it can change forms, okay? So there's a few different forms of energy that we are going to be concerned with, okay? Um, Potential energy. Okay, potential energy uh, is energy that's stored in chemical bonds and it could be useful. It could do work. It could be used for something else. And this is the reason why we'll break bonds. So we'll intentionally break chemical bonds to release that energy to use it for something else. And I'm getting ahead of myself, but our body does this in a few important ways. Uh, If you've ever heard of ATP, adenosine triphosphate, that's the primary way that our body uh, accomplishes this goal. We store energy in the form of this molecule, and we like to break off one of the last atoms and release the energy that was stored in the bond that was holding that atom in place. And in doing so, we use that released energy to accomplish other work. Okay, I'm getting ahead of myself, but we will get there. Um, mechanical energy—we're not really going to concern ourselves with too much. Kinetic energy—that's um, the energy that exists uh, when there, when um, when things are in motion. And one of the kind of immediate carry um, uh, carryovers for that is that um, all matter is going to have kinetic energy because at any given time, all the atoms. Uh, around are moving. They're always moving, which means they have a kinetic energy. And that's part of what leads to reactions, because uh, in order for them to interact with each other and, and, um, and create a reaction, they have to run into each other with sufficient energy that there's enough energy to accomplish the reaction. And we'll get there. Um, chemical. So chemical energy, um, as far as we're concerned, is going to be synonymous with potential energy. Okay, it has, Potential energy is, it, um, for our purposes, or sorry, the chemical energy stored in chemical bonds is potential energy. Okay, there's energy holding two things together, and we could harvest that energy by breaking that bond. And then heat. Um, so heat is essentially energy that's going to flow between two objects. Heat always flows from an area where it's warmer to an area where it's colder. We're, that's going to be a theme that we're going to see uh, over and over in a few other contexts today. Um, heat is obviously important uh, for a bunch of reasons. Uh, heat is going to be um, heat is going to be a byproduct, right? So we will uh, heat is going to be a byproduct of a number of other chemical reactions. So heat is given off when other chemical reactions occur. Okay, <clears throat> so as I said, um, the molecules and the atoms in the in your body and in everything are constantly in motion. So they have some base level of kinetic <coughs> energy. Okay, and for chemicals to react in a chemical reaction, they have to collide with sufficient energy to, to, uh, to produce that reaction. So, the, so um, a, a large amount of that is basically just the kinetic energy that the molecules have from their motion. They run into each other um, with enough energy, they can react. Now, Sometimes, even if two uh, molecules or two atoms run into each other, they might not have enough energy in that connection in that, in that collision to, uh, to initiate a reaction. So in order for a reaction to happen, you need to cross the threshold of, is there enough energy for it to occur? Is there enough activation energy? And if there is, a reaction will occur. If there's not, they'll move on. Okay? So in some circumstances, the molecules in a particular place, location, situation will not have enough energy inherently to interact with each other. So sometimes we need to give them a boost. Okay? So the basic ideas of how we can do that are if you've taken a chemistry class right, and you want a reaction to occur, you put two things that are supposed to react with each other in a beaker, and you mix it up. Nothing happens. Okay? One of the simplest things that you can do to make it react is add more energy. And you do that with a Bunsen burner. Right? So you add heat energy to the, to the, to the, um, to the mix. So by heating it up, you're adding more energy, which translates into more kinetic energy of the, of the molecules, which means they're going to collide uh, more frequently with greater energy. And the likelihood of them reacting increases. And so you can force them to react in that way. You can also force a reaction or, or induce a reaction to occur by increasing the concentration. So how, how much of the, of the reactants are present in this particular location, in this solution, in this substance? If there's more of them, they'd be more likely to react. So we can change concentrations to do that as well. Now in the lab and in the body, we can also do something else. We can add a catalyst. So um, in in the lab, in a chemistry lab, a catalyst is something you're going to put in that beaker that's going to uh, essentially not be used up in a reaction, but it's going to make that reaction easier to occur. So it's basically going to significantly lower the activation energy that's necessary for that reaction to happen, and so it happens more readily. Okay, So that's, that's what a catalyst is. We have catalysts in the body, lots and lots and lots of them. We just don't call them catalysts. We call them enzymes. Okay, So enzymes <coughs> are organic substances that we make that will make reactions occur more readily. Okay? They'll make reactions occur because you can't add Bunsen burner type heat to your body. Right? It doesn't work that way. We need to maintain a fairly consistent temperature, uh, and we need to find ways to allow chemical reactions to occur when and as much as we want them to. And so we make organic enzymes in order to do that. <laughs> so, so they can really, really, really significantly uh, change the rate at which reactions occur. So say you know, 10, ten, hundred, thousands, a million times more readily depending on what reaction it is is we're talking about. So that's significant. Does anybody know <laughs> what enzymes are made of in the body? Proteins, exactly. So proteins mm-hmm. are, are, are going to be super, super, super important for a pile of reasons, and, and creation of enzymes is, is one of them. <clears throat> OK, let's watch another video on this slide.
2: These are proteins that speed up chemical reactions in the cell. A special region on the enzyme called the active site has a shape that fits with specific substrate molecules. An enzyme works by binding to one or more specific molecules called reactants or substrates. Binding occurs at the active site. The enzyme and substrates form an enzyme-substrate complex. The interactions between the substrates and the enzyme stresses or weakens some of the chemical bonds in the substrates. These stresses encourage a link between the two substrates leading to the formation of a different molecule. As a result of the chemical interactions within the active site, a new product is formed. The product is released from the active site. The enzyme assumes its original shape and is free to work again. Although this reaction has specifically illustrated the formation of a single product from two substrate molecules, other enzymes catalyze the formation of two products from a single substrate.
0: Understand the last thing you said? So the video is showing uh, taking two smaller things together and inducing them to, to, to uh, join together to create uh, a bigger thing. What kind of reaction is that? Or what kind of uh, yeah, chemical reaction is that in the body? Synthesis, or if it's in the human body, we call it Anabolic, right? You're you're building something bigger from two smaller things. The opposite is also very, very, very common. We we'll use an enzyme <laughs> to take a bigger substance and rip it apart into smaller uh, substances. And that kind of reaction is called decomposition. decomposition, or in the body, catabolic. Okay, anabolic building up, catabolic breaking down. Very good. <clears throat> okay, so uh, some reactions. Are reversible, okay? So they don't necessarily just go one way. They can go back and forth and back and forth, and it depends on uh, the concentration. Uh, I'm trying to remember, and I apologize. I need to ask you this. Last week, did we talk about? Did I put something on the board that was what happened when you add carbon dioxide into water? Okay. Did we talk about uh, what goes into and what comes out of cells in your basic metabolism? That's okay too. Totally fine. Okay. <laughs> I just wanted to make sure. So let's look at this here. All right. um, <clears throat> an easy example of a reversible reaction is something that exists in what's called an equilibrium. Okay? So it means that uh, earlier we said the, um, the, uh, the reactants are what goes into a chemical reaction, and the products are what comes out. Okay? Now in this kind of reversible reaction, it can go either way. So the reactants can become the products, which can Turn from what they consider to be their own reactants back into products, which are what we started with in the first place. So basically, what I'm saying is if you take this, what is that? Carbon dioxide, dioxide. okay, and you add it to this water, okay, and remember that. All the substance all the fluids in the body, the blood, the interstitial fluid and all this all, all basically, the majority of the body is steeped in water, so you're adding it to body fluids. It can turn into this. what's that? Hydrogen ion. Good. And a little bit tougher one, but important. what's that? That uh, is bicarbonate. Okay, so <coughs> uh, this should balance out. Yes. Okay, so if you add carbon dioxide to water, it can turn into hydrogen and bicarbonate. Now, this is reversible. Okay, it's actually part of uh, what's called a buffering system. There isn't in between. Okay. This is called carbonic acid. This exists really, really briefly, and then it turns from one side to the other. But the point of what they're saying here is that as much as if you add carbon dioxide and water together, you'll get hydrogen and bicarbonate. If you add hydrogen and bicarbonate together, you'll get carbon dioxide and water. So How does that work? Well, it works in a balance. So it's called an equilibrium. So it's basically, this all is existing within a solution right within water, let's say within blood okay <laughs> so you have a, a fluid that is your blood and in it there's going to be a whole bunch of things and this reaction is going to happen if if you uh, if you act if you add carbon dioxide to water okay but it doesn't just keep happening because if these things get added together it can also become what we just talked about in the beginning so basically it gets to a point of equilibrium a balance so the the, the, what ends up being in solution in the water, in the blood, ends up being a fairly even-ish balance of both sides of this equation. okay? Because if, uh, essentially, well, what will happen functionally is, if you happen to all of a sudden start taking one of these things away, if I happen to start taking this hydrogen and throwing it away, just getting rid of it from the body entirely, which does happen, that's what our kidneys do, If I were to just get rid of it, it's no longer in balance. It's no longer in equilibrium. So what's going to happen is more carbon dioxide and water are going to mix together and rebalance this equation. So now we have a new balance. If all of a sudden I were to get rid of a whole bunch of carbon dioxide, just toss it out of the body, get rid of it, which happens in the lungs. When we exhale, we breathe out carbon dioxide. If all of a sudden I were to get rid of a bunch of carbon dioxide by breathing out a lot, same thing happens in reverse. So all of a sudden this and this are in the blood, they say, okay, well, we're now missing that so let's combine together and we'll shift through to this end of the equation and create a new balance again. Does that sort of make sense? Okay, so that again, we're, this will come back into play later on when we talk about pH balance in the body and what we do with our lungs and our kidneys and there's a lot of interaction you will definitely see this reaction again. Okay? You don't sound excited. (coughs) All right. Okay. Let's do one more slide and then we'll take a break. Okay. So water, I've been referring to this kind of uh, throughout. Uh, We as a life form would not be able to exist without water. We're carbon based but we're you know we are entirely dependent on water uh strictly by weight humans are you know somewhere between 50 and 60 percent water by weight um it makes up a significant amount of us uh, it is responsible for basically being the uh being the salute being the um the solvent in which and we will see that what that term means in a bit the solvent in which All of our solutions are created and all of our chemical reactions occur. Like all our chemical reactions, they don't occur dry, they occur in water. Uh, So they couldn't occur without us being largely made up of water. Which means also that it's super important for transport, for moving things around the body. Again, blood is largely water. It's how we uh, transfer heat, again through blood and through things like sweat. It's for protection, it's for just about everything. Okay, so take away from this slide. Water is super important. Great. Let's move on. Okay. So let's stop there for a sec. Let's take a break until a quarter after. And then we'll uh, we'll keep we'll get back out. Alright, so let's get back into it. I promise some of this stuff will will start making some more relevant sense soon in the ways that we're actually gonna use it. <clears throat> so next. Uh, a solution. I've been using that term already. Uh, solution is basically a mixture. It could be liquid, it could be gas, it could be solid. The most typical ones that we're going to talk about are, are liquids and gases. Basically, we have a mixture together where there's a couple different components and they're all uniformly distributed. That was when I was saying earlier how you took um, table salt and you, you dissolved it in water and you mixed it all up. That is a solution. So When you have a solution, you basically have two parts. You have the solvent. which in that case is the water. It's what the the stuff is dissolved into. And the solute, which is the stuff that's being dissolved into that solvent. And those two things together make a solution. So there's some other things that are relevant in the body as well. You can also have suspensions. So a suspension is like a solution, but not really. Uh, A suspension is a mixture, but of stuff that is either too big or not soluble enough to be able to be fully dissolved in what we would call a solution. Okay? But it can be evenly still be evenly distributed and suspended in what we call a suspension. So um, blood is technically a suspension. Okay? Blood is also a solution, because blood there's lots and lots and lots of stuff going on in blood. So in blood, for example, you have little stuff, electrolytes, solutes that are dissolved in it. You have you know, hydrogen and, and uh, oxygen and carbon dioxide and sodium and chloride and all sorts of little stuff. But you've also got bigger stuff. Okay? You've got bigger uh, proteins and molecules that are carrying fats and a bunch of other stuff that is not, they're too big and too nonpolar to be truly dissolved in the solution, but they are still contained within the fluid that is blood because they're suspended throughout. So it, blood is both a suspension and a solution. <coughs> okay? Now, I'm gonna be a bit of a nerd here for one second. Well, one more second. I don't think it ever stopped <laughs> um, When we talk about concentrations and especially concentrations relating to um, stuff going on in the body <clears throat> a term you'll see once in a while not terribly often The only time you're really gonna see it in any detail is probably gonna be when we talk about kidneys at some point in, path, in uh, anatomy Two. Uh, but the uh, concentration of stuff in the body is called, um, the concentration is in what's called an osmol. So what does that mean? It means you got moles of something in water, the os part. Okay? So what does that actually mean? Okay? Well, an osmol basically means you got uh, certain moles in, in water. So what is a mole? A mole is Avogadro's number of particles. Well, what the hell is that? Okay? Does anyone know what it is? I'm certain that some of you have heard before is yeah you're getting there yeah so six point oh two times ten to the power of twenty three. What's that? So basically it's you take this number and then you add twenty three more zeros and that's the number of particles that you have in a mole. so an mole is that many particles in excuse me one kilogram of water. Well, that seems like a useless measurement, it's not. What's the volume of a kilogram of water? <laughs> OK, so here's where I prove that I'm a nerd. <laughs> okay. Because this sort of the metric system is actually awesome. So one kilogram of water is one liter. OK? One liter is thousand milliliters. Each milliliter is one cubic centimeter. These all kind of go around and around. They're all related back to one another. Uh, That's why the metric system is super useful, and the imperial system is absolutely not completely useless, and only three countries in the world use it. Liberia, Myanmar, the United States. They're stubborn as hell. Anyway, (laughs) so if you take this many molecules and dissolve them in a liter of water, that gives you an Okay? So, for the most part, <coughs> stuff in the body, the fluids—excuse <coughs> me—are going to be about 300 milliosmoles, so 300, one thousandth of a mole, so about a third of that number. Again, that absolute number for our purposes doesn't matter. It's just you're going to see those terms at some point. Just have some recognition of what that means. Okay, this you will actually see in use. So, <coughs> let's talk about acids and bases. So acids are basically, we have to talk about the pH scale. Does anybody know what pH stands for? It's an important place to start. pH stands for (coughs) power of hydrogen. So basically, this whole scale is based on (coughs) how much relative amounts of hydrogen there is in a solution. Okay. So pH scale goes from what to what? 0 to 14. Perfect. So which means dead center right in the middle you have 7.0 that is neutral, pure water. Okay? The closer you get down towards 0, the lower on the pH scale you have, the more acidic something is. The higher you get on the pH scale towards 14, the more basic or alkaline something is. Okay? In a lab you usually say it's basic in uh, in the body when we talk about physiology, it's usually referred to as alkalinity. Okay? So those terms are interchangeable. <clears throat> so this is all based on how much hydrogen is in solution. All right? So basically, as the pH goes down, as you get more acidic, okay, more ac- a solution that's more acidic means there is more hydrogen in it. Okay? A solution that is less acidic or more alkaline means there is relatively less Hydrogen in it. Okay? And that's a really important point to remember. People get that mixed up all the time. They say, sorry? More hydrogen. Nope, more acidic, more hydrogen. So if something is more acidic, that means there's more hydrogen, and that means it's lower on the pH scale. So people get that mixed up where they think, more hydrogen, it's higher. It's not. Okay? More acidic. More hydrogen means lower on the pH scale. So anything below 7. And as you approach 0, it's even more and more and more concentrated. And to that end, actually, the pH scale is not linear. (laughs) It's logarithmic, which basically means every full number that you jump on that scale is a factor of 10 times more concentrated. So um, something that is a pH of 5 is 10 times as acidic as something that's a pH of 6. Something that is a pH of 4 is 10 times as acidic as something that's a pH of 5. Something that's a pH of 4 is 100 times as acidic as something that's a pH of 6. Does that make sense? So multiply by a factor of 10 every time you go down. So something that is a pH of 3 is how many times more acidic than something that's a pH of 6? Nope. So, let's so see, you start at 6. You go from 6 to 5. That's 10 times more acidic. You go from there to 4. Nope, nope. So, 4 is 10 times as acidic as 5, which means 4 is 100 times as acidic as 6. If you keep dropping, you go to 3. 3 is 10 times as acidic as 4, which means 3 is ten, uh, 100 times as acidic as 5, which means 3 is 1,000 times as acidic as 6. Okay? 2 is 10,000 times as acidic as 6. Does that make sense? You multiply by then 10 every time. Yeah. Oh. Okay. I will never make you make that calculation just to give you a, a, <laughs> a, a of be honest, probably, I mean it's useless right for us. But it's important to understand the relative differences. Okay? So they ah, oh, well the pH of the stomach it, eh, it's supposed to be at 2, but it's really at 1. It's not that big of a difference. It is. It's 10 times as acidic. Okay? Anyway, um, the other end of that scale is, is the same, right? As you go up from, uh, from 8 to 9, it's 10 times more alkaline. From, uh, from 8 to 10 is 100, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Okay, so <clears throat> um, the other term to understand is this whole thing is based on hydrogen ions, okay? A synonymous term for hydrogen ion is a proton, right? Um, this right here, hydrogen ion, it's the element number one, hydrogen. And it's an ion, which means it's lost its only electron, which means all that's left is a proton. That's it. So a hydrogen ion is a proton. So an acid, technically, is a a substance that donates, that gives, that adds protons, hydrogen ions, into a solution. So if you say something is an acid, what it really means is if you put that acid in water, it will dissociate, and there will now be a whole bunch of free hydrogen ions, which means that solution is now acidic. Okay. And if something is more alkaline, it means there's less of that. That's as simple as I, can, as I can make it. All right? Now, what does this mean for us in the body? Okay? Well, <coughs> pH of blood is important. Our body, I think I said last week, <coughs> our body regulates blood pH very, very tightly. If somebody asks you what the pH of blood is, uh, the general answer is 7.4. The strict no, uh, full answer is from 7.35 to 7.45. We can operate somewhere in that, uh, within that range. As soon as you get outside that range, either too high or too low, chemical processes and cellular functions and all sorts of things start falling apart. They don't work the way they should, and things go sideways very, very quickly. Okay, so we have a bunch of mechanisms in place to regulate blood pH as tightly as we possibly can. Okay? So, <clears throat> if the bo- if the blood pH drops below 7.35, below the bottom end of our range, okay, even though technically it's still alkaline because it's still above seven, it is more acidic than we want it. Okay, so anything below 7.35, we consider acidosis. It's becoming more acidic than we want it. Make sense? Anything that is above 7.45 we call alkalosis. More alkaline than we alkaline than we want it to be. Make sense? Make sure you memorize those numbers. As so as I said there's a bunch of stuff that's not useful to memorize. I've tried to point it out. This one you have to know. Okay? <clears throat> now there are systems in place To to balance this stuff out, there are buffering systems in the body. We're not going to get into any depth on those today, but we will talk about those in another class at another time, probably in in patho. Okay, Uh, for giving you uh, um, uh, some some comparisons um, to give you an idea of of, uh, what kind of pH differences we have, (coughs) again, we have here uh, neutral pure water, right, 7.0. Middle of the scale, we saw human blood is at 7.4, so very slightly alkaline. Um, uh, if you want to go to, you know, toward farther towards the alkaline end of the scale, we have seawater, we have antacid, ammonia, bleach, and then sodium hydroxide, or so lye. Okay. Um, so as you get farther and farther along towards the alkaline end of the scale, um, it becomes very, very damaging to any organic tissues, just the same way as if you went down towards the acidic end of the scale. Okay, if you've ever, ever watched any crime shows or, uh, or things like that, um, there are lots of cases of, uh, of mafioso and serial killers and people like that who will use uh, sodium hydroxide uh, in a barrel to dissolve bodies. So they just <laughs> gone. Okay? Um, so as we get towards the acidic end of the scale, uh, we have things like milk, which is very slightly acidic because it's got lactic acid in it. Um, we have uh, urine. Uh, and you'll see, when we talk about the the renal system, you'll understand why urine is most typically acidic, because that's its kind of baseline function, is to offload uh, um, hydrogen ions. We have things like tomato juice, or grapefruit juice, or wine, uh, lemon juice. <clears throat> Stomach acid usually sits, the usual numbers you'll, you'll read are it sits somewhere between 1.5 to 2 to 3 in that ballpark. Okay, It's very concentrated. Hydrochloric acid is going to be 1. And then there are some even stronger acids that can get even closer to zero. Okay, so again, logarithmic. So technically, um, uh, um, something that's a pH of five, let's say tomato juice was five, is actually ten times as acidic as urine. Um, And remember, it's a logarithmic scale in that way. Okay, let's move on. Inorganic chemistry. So, inorganic chemistry, by definition, means you're talking about all the chemistry that is not talking about carbon, okay? Um, so, anything that, uh, so or- organic chemistry is the study of, uh, of-, of molecules and-, and chemistry that involves carbon. Um, but technically, what it really means is carbon bonded to hydrogen. Um, so, although things like carbon dioxide contain carbon, because there's no hydrogen in, it, it's hydrogen in it, it's not considered organic because it's just carbon and oxygen. So when you hear organic chemistry, think carbon and hydrogen bonded together. Okay? Um, there are lots and lots and lots of both organic and inorganic molecules uh, in the body, um, all of which are, are important for a bunch of different reasons. Um, we saw this already earlier, how water is polar. Right, water is polar because the uh, the, bond, the covalent bonds that make up H2O, uh, they are polar covalent. The oxygen end of the molecule pulls the electrons a little more strongly than the hydrogens. And so you have a slightly negative charge on this red part, which is the oxygen, compared to the white parts, which are the hydrogen. Which means that the slightly positive hydrogens, when you have a whole bunch of water molecules all mixed together, are going to be attracted to the slightly negative oxygens of the other molecules. Thus, we've, we've talked about already. Back to the organic stuff, okay? So again, organic chemistry means we're talking about carbon-containing substances. Specifically, carbon bonded to hydrogen, but let's just say carbon. Um, There's lots of ways we can go with this, but we're gonna, for now, keep it very, very simple. There are basically four major types of of, uh, organic molecules that are absolutely essential as macronutrients or things that we need in order to live that are super, super, super important to us, okay? Carbohydrates, lipids, proteins, and nucleic acids. Okay? There's one other thing, too, uh, which is related to a nucleic acid, nucleic acid called ATP. We're going to see that um, by the end of this lecture. Okay? Now, when you see a picture like this, this, this is uh, confusing if, uh, if you don't have a total grasp on what it is that makes up these foods. People say, uh, bread is carbs. OK, yes, there are lots of carbohydrates in bread. But there's other stuff, too. Right, there's not just carbohydrates. Same way that, uh, that you know um, that ice cream is not just lipids. Okay, there's all sorts of other stuff in there. It just happens to have lots of lipids in it. Same thing with meat. Although meat, yes, has a lot of protein. There's lots of carbohydrates and fats in there as well. So, let's uh, let's talk about each of them a little bit. Carbohydrates. Uh, carbohydrates. The name carbohydrate comes from the fact that they're made of carbon, hydrogen, and oxygen. Uh, and um, all of our carbohydrates are going to be soluble in polar solvent, which means they dissolve in water. Okay, so sugar dissolves in water, for example. Um, and carbohydrates are super important because um, the simple forms of carbohydrates are the preferred fuel source for the majority of the cells in the body. And, okay, so the basic example of that is glucose. Um, glucose, which is a what's called a monosaccharide, a simple sugar, is the single most preferred fuel source for uh, using it to make energy that we can actually use in the cells of our body. There are, of course, other things we can use. But given the choice, uh, our cells prefer to use glucose because it's quick and easy. Okay. Now, we have to learn um, the other monosaccharides as well. So mono means one. Um, Saccharide means a sugar. So we have a monosaccharide is one molecule of a simple sugar. There are three examples of them. Fructose, glucose, and galactose. So, for your test, wink, wink, and probably for your online test, I believe, you need to make sure you know what those are. Okay? So, your monosaccharides are glucose, fructose, and galactose. Okay? Disaccharides are next. A disaccharide, di means two, which means you have uh, two simple sugars, so some combination of those monosaccharides stuck together, acting as an individual unit, okay? which can subsequently be broken down into its component parts. All right? Three examples of disaccharides that I want you to know. Only one is in your notes, so make sure you add the other two. Okay? The first example of a disaccharide, two sugars together, is sucrose. You recognize sucrose? What's the more common term for sucrose? Table sugar. right? So sucrose is a disaccharide that is one glucose molecule and one fructose molecule together. Okay, so it's a disaccharide. It's a glucose and a fructose, which makes a disaccharide called sucrose. All right. Two more. The second is something you recognize as well. A glucose paired with a galactose is called lactose. sugar found in dairy products. So exactly. Glucose and-, glucose and galactose, right? So what you have here, look at the board, fructose, glucose and galactose are your only three possibilities for your monosaccharides. So some combination of these things will make larger chains. In this case, we're talking about chains of two. So sucrose is glucose and fructose, lactose is glucose and galactose. The third example is what's called maltose. Maltose is glucose plus glucose. So two molecules of glucose bonded together make maltose, M-A-L-T-O-S-E. Glucose plus glucose equals maltose. Okay? Glucose plus fructose equals sucrose. Glucose plus galactose equals lactose. Glucose plus glucose equals maltose. Good. Those are your three disaccharides. Again?
1: Sorry? No, I Oh, OK. <coughs> all right.
0: You get them all? Yep. I'll put it on the board. equals glucose times the 2. Lactose okay. equals glucose plus galactose. And sucrose, suc- glucose plus
1: all right. These
0: are disaccharides. Those are disaccharides. Good. OK. So next are polysaccharides. What does the prefix poly mean? Many. Many. OK. So there are lots of examples of polysaccharides. Okay. It basically means you have long chains uh, or molecules of chain together uh, mono, monomers, so monosaccharides like glucose. Uh, we're not, we're not going to concern ourselves with any of the, the details uh, in this right now. I will tell you. So the starches, for example, are, are polysaccharides. Um, carple- complex carbohydrates are poly- polysaccharides. There is one that's important that I want you to know because uh, it's metabolically important. It's called glycogen. It's on your slides, right here. Okay, glycogen. Glycogen, if you can imagine, is basically long, long branched chains of glucose. So this is, picture isn't even going to do a test. Let's imagine every little circle that I draw is a glucose molecule. Okay? So long chains of glucose. Now imagine my lines are exactly what I've been doing there. There's there are a whole bunch of circles all chained together without me drawing all the circles. So uh, glycogen is going to look like this. Looks like a tree. Long, multi branch chain after chain, branch after branch of glucose. All right? So big, big molecules. What's that for? Storage. So basically, we take a whole bunch of glucose, we string them all together, and we pack them into places where we want to hold on to it for later. Okay? There are two places in the body where we store glycogen. Does anybody know where they are? Okay, one is in the liver. So we store glycogen in the liver to be broken off and released when we need it. And the other is a place in the body that's very highly metabolically active that's going to need a lot of energy at the, uh, and it's going to need it quickly when it, when it wants it. So we need it close by so that we can have it when we need to use it. What tissue am I talking about? Muscle, skeletal muscle. Good. Make sense? Perfect. All right. Next on our list is lipids. What's the other word for lipids? <laughs> Fats. Perfect. Those terms are effectively interchangeable. They're also made of carbon, hydrogen, and oxygen, but they are in a, a very much a different orientation than our carbohydrates. Um, There's some other elements that can be found in there too, like phosphorus and nitrogen. The big thing to take away here is they are nonpolar, which means they do not dissolve in polar solvents like water. Okay, so fats and water do not mix. And that is important. That's going to give us a, we we use that uh, for for a whole bunch of uh, physiological purposes in the body. So the fats that we're going to find in the body are typically, there's a whole bunch of them, we get classes of them, but the three big forms that we're going to be concerned with are triglycerides, uh, which basically means you have a molecule called glycerol and then three long uh, tails of what are called fatty acids. okay? We don't need to concern ourselves with the details of what they look like or what that really means, but I want you to memorize, that triglycerides are our primary storage mechanism for fats in the body. Okay? When you have fat cells, adipocytes. Okay? Adipose is also synonymous with fat. Adipocytes, their basic job is just to fill up with fat and store it. It's largely holding on to lots and lots of triglycerides. Sorry? Uh, yeah, that's the, it's like 90%, 95% of the fat that we store in our body. So all the jiggly stuff on the outside, the adipocytes, <laughs> these are mostly filled up with triglycerides. All right. Next, we have phospholipids. Okay? Phospholipids are very important, very important. And we're going to get into talking about the cell today. Okay? The next slide here is about phospholipids, so I'm going to jump to this right now. OK, so phospholipids are, uh, they have a phosphate part, that's the phospho, and they have a lipid part, which is the lipid part. So basically, they look like they have there's this over here where they have a head and then two tails. Okay, So the head is the phosphate part, and the tails are the lipid parts. Now this is a really interesting molecule because part of that molecule, is uh, not necessarily water soluble, but, but but hydrophilic. Okay, attracted to water. Okay, the fat part is definitely not the fat part. We said fat and water don't mix. The fat part, the tails, are hydrophobic. Okay, or lipophilic, fat loving, fat attracted to. Okay, so anyway, the the, the phosphate head, the blue part in that diagram, is hy- the hydrophilic phosphate. The tails, the two fatty acid tails are hydrophobic, not mixing with water. Now, just memorize that for now. It'll come back into play when we talk about what makes up the cell, because the cell membrane is made up of two layers of these guys back to back. And that essentially creates a barrier uh, where you have water in the inside of cells, water on the outside of cells, and then a fatty layer that makes up the actual membrane of the cell itself. Okay, Super, super important. We'll get back to that in a little bit. The last major class of lipids are steroids, <clears throat> okay? So, when people, again, people think generally think of steroids. They think of hormones and anabolic steroids, right? There are lots and lots and lots of, of steroid hormones. There are lots of steroids, lots of things. The word steroid means that it's constructed from cholesterol. So cholesterol... Is I don't have a good picture here. We'll actually see it in the next unit, but cholesterol is technically a lipid. It's a fat. Um, It's got a ring-shaped structure that makes it pretty unique. Um, But anything that is a steroid means it's got as part of its makeup at least one molecule of cholesterol. Okay. So um, uh, for a a bunch of reasons, people have gotten it into the. uh, They've got this idea in their head that cholesterol is bad. Okay? This, diet, this crappy diet, uh, diet's uh, um, um, suggestions over the last few decades where people are now afraid of cholesterol. Don't be. Uh, cholesterol is absolutely necessary for life. In fact, if you don't get enough of it in your diet, your body will manufacture it. Okay? You absolutely need it for, for life. Okay? You can't make a number of your hormones, including estrogen, progesterone, testosterone, without it, your steroid hormones. Um, uh, other corticosteroids stuff uh, like, uh, like cortisol, a pile of different important uh, uh, hormones and chemicals, absolutely require cholesterol to to make them. As well as every single cell in your body, in mixed in between the phospholipid stuff that I was talking about, you have a bunch of cholesterol as well that contribute to a- allowing the cells to be pliable. Okay, so super super important. Do not be afraid of it. Yeah. <laughs> you can if you have a genetic disorder called familial hypercholesterolemia. But other than that, not really. Honestly, your body regulates cholesterol very, very tightly. Okay? So how, the doctors, <clears throat> how much time do we have? All right. It. Okay. I'm going to keep this as tight as I can. Okay. So, <laughs> when... When you get a blood panel, okay, and you, you say you have you, you're looking at blood uh, levels of cholesterol, it's not really cholesterol. we've called it that because it's easy to, to, to say and to get across. What we're really talking about are what are called lipoproteins, okay so lipoprotein, lipo means fat, protein means protein. So they're big molecules that are transport molecules uh, for fats in the blood, okay because Remember, fats are not water soluble. So if you want to take a fat from one part of the body to the other, you need it to move in this molecule, a transport molecule. Otherwise, it's hard you can't move it. And so the molecule is made up of protein and fat and some other stuff, too. There are a whole bunch of different kinds of phospholipids. The big two that you're concerned with, typically, when you do your blood panel, are this, called HDL, okay? high density lipoprotein, protein. And the other one is LDL. That's an L. or a low-density lipoprotein. So we'll colloquially call the high-density one the good cholesterol, and the low-density one the bad cholesterol. Now remember, there's a lot more than cholesterol in these molecules. There's proteins and other fats, too. What the difference between them is that this one has a lot more protein, and this one has a lot more fat. There's actually even more to it, than there's three other classes of, of ones that fit in here, too. Intermediate density, very low density, and some other stuff but it's it's a lot more complicated than we want to say it is. The point is, there is an association between uh, good cardiovascular health and having lots of these guys and less of these guys, and vice versa. The tricky part is, how do we we manipulate that and how does it actually interact? So, you said something about fatty plaques, okay? So, this is way down the line. (laughs) In cardiovascular disease, okay? Um, what happened was, so, uh, so we t- took a whole bunch of patients that had that died of, of, of blockages, cardiovascular disease, so blockages in the heart, blockages in the, in the brain, things like that. And you open up their arteries after they die, and you say, well, look at all this. There's all this fatty plaque that's infiltrated the arteries, and it's clogged them up, and it's narrowed them. Fat must be the problem, okay? Because when you open up those atheromas or plaques, they're largely made of fats, including cholesterol. Oh, cholesterol becomes the enemy, stop eating cholesterol. The problem is cholesterol is not the issue. Our body uses it to patch up damage. So the inner line of the blood vessels are being damaged by something, and our body is using cholesterol to try to fix it. And So we open them up and say, ah, there's your problem, cholesterol. So there's this whole issue, right, back in the 80s, where we had the lipid hypothesis of cardiovascular disease, where this happened and we said, Well, fat's the enemy. Everyone stop eating fat. Right? And this happened. Right? People went on low-fat diets. What happened to the rates of cardiovascular disease? They continued going up. So we kind of missed the mark on that one. And, And and the law the very short version of what happened was when you take food, right, when you manufacture food and you take all the fat out of it, it tastes like shit. (laughs) <laughs> right. So you have to add stuff to it to make it palatable, and what do you add to it? Sugars, okay. oils are fats, right? But you add you typically add carbohydrates like sugars, and what? The, again, the short version of what's really happening is when you take in a ton of sugar, that becomes an inflammatory stimulus that causes damage to the inner lining of blood vessels, and we lay down fats to fix the problem. So. It's a complicated thing that I promise you we'll talk about more in another class. All right, It's as short as I can make it. I'm sorry?
2: Uh,
0: it definitely is a problem. It's a very much a problem. OK. <laughs> One more thing cholesterol. <laughs> this is, I'm sorry. <laughs> My background's in nutrition. This is a pet peeve of mine. Um, your body will very, very tightly regulate cholesterol. So the amount of cholesterol that you put in your mouth and the amount of cholesterol that ends up in your blood have virtually no correlation. And that shocks a lot of people. Okay? So yes, there are, there are dietary components to it, and it matters, and these numbers do matter, but not quite for the reason that you think. If you want one surefire way to make, to get, better numbers of these. So increase your good cholesterol and decrease your bad cholesterol. What do you do? One thing. And I'll give you a hint, it has nothing to do with your diet. There it is. Okay. Anyway, (laughs) fats are very important for a bunch of reasons in the body. Uh, They are uh, for protection, for padding. We use them in the internal organs to pad the organs. We use them on the outside to pad the outside. Quite frankly, we probably have Generally, too much of it on the outside. Uh, it's for insulation, right? So, you um, know, uh, evolutionarily speaking, it was advantageous to the species, to the individual, to have more fat on them because it helps them against the cold. It's an extra, um, it's an extra energy storage uh, molecule. So you have energy to use, uh, you know, when when food is short. Um, it, it is evolutionarily ad- advantageous for us, it has been, to pack on the fat right? when we can. When there's abundance, our body uh, uses what it can, and then everything else, it stores away for later because the lean days will come. right? We used to be hunter-gatherers. So there will be times when there is not a lot of food around, and in that case, it's good to have some extra fat. We now live in a world where we are not in that kind of scenario anymore. We have abundance. And so we end up carrying more than we need. All sorts of problems associated with that. Okay. Uh, regulation, it's important for, for, uh, for making hormones. I said cholesterol is a, part, a chemical portion of all, every single one of our steroid hormones. Um, there are a number of vitamins that are fat-soluble that you can't absorb without fat. A, D, E, and K are all in that category. Structure of the cells. and Fat is absolutely necessary for a number of facets of, of human life. Let's move on. Proteins, (coughs) okay? Proteins, very, very, very important as well. Um, They will contain mostly carbon, hydrogen, oxygen, nitrogen. They'll be bound together tightly with those covalent bonds uh, that share electrons. And one of the things to take away, I guess, off the top is they're big. Compared to a lot of the other molecules we've been talking about, proteins are massive. So to give you a, a, a visual of this, uh, if the molecular mass of water is 18, the glucose is about 180, proteins will be in the 1,000 to several million range. So they are orders of magnitude bigger in size. And that speaks to what we do with them. Okay? Proteins basically give us the, well, it's, it's find a list, okay? Proteins give us um, structure, okay? So we use things like collagen and elastin to give us the framework and the physical structure of all of our tissues. Um, we, we build proteins like keratin that give us our um, uh, f- fill up our skin cells and protect us against the outside world. It makes, keratin makes up hair and nails. Um, we use proteins uh, for um, for generating force, right? So uh, in your in your muscle, uh, the components of uh, the parts of muscle that grab onto each other and pull are made of protein. So we need lots of them. Uh, proteins will make enzymes. We saw earlier the video of enzymes, that, that purple, think molecule, whatever it was, that took in the reactants and, or, and put them together easily and made a product. That purple thing was protein. So every enzyme that you have that's catalyzing reactions in every cell and every uh, you know, fluid in your body all day long, they're all made of proteins, okay? Um, what else? Uh, Transports, so, um, so things like hemoglobin. Okay, so hemoglobin is packed in your red blood cells. It's how we transport oxygen from the lungs to the cells. Hemoglobin is largely a protein, okay? four different protein chains. Uh, protein, antibodies are proteins. Antibodies are critical for how your immune system works. Uh, and if we have to, we can, use, we can break down protein and use it for energy. So very, very, very important. Okay? The other basics for proteins that we have to know before we move on are that proteins are made up of building blocks called amino acids. So the same way that polysaccharides were made of building blocks called monosaccharides, simple sugars, proteins are made up of building blocks called amino acids. And amino acids are essentially the the basic idea of how a protein is built. You take an amino acid and you attach it through what's called a peptide bond to another amino acid. And you attach another amino acid through a peptide bond and another and another and another and another. And we make a big long chain of amino acids. And then we take that chain and we fold it. And we take that folded chain we fold it again. And we fold it again. And then it ends up with this bulky 3D structure that, that does the job of whatever that protein is supposed to do, whether that's structural, whether that's an enzyme, whether that's an antibody, whether that's whatever. Okay. So all proteins are made of amino acids. They're folded to make 3D structures. So far so good? Perfect. OK. <coughs> all right. Uh, do, do, do. We can skip this, uh, we can skip this, no, we can't, sorry. Um, we know that proteins can be enzymes, all enzymes are proteins. Um, uh, it's it also, as other things are in the body, um, as far as what we want, the environment that we want for chemical reactions to occur properly, um, we do need to maintain normal temperatures and concentrations and those kinds of things and pH. So when things go awry, when the temperature range of of the body is not where we want it to be, whether it's too hot or too cold, that can change the function of enzymes, okay? And so that has implications and that comes back to our discussion last week about homeostasis and why we want to thermoregulate and keep our body temperature just so, exactly where we want it. Same thing goes with pH, okay? We want to keep pH really tightly between 7.35 and? 7.45, 7.45, good. If we fall outside of that range, if we go too low, it's called acidosis. acidosis. If we go too high, it's called alkalosis. alkalosis. In either one of those examples, if you start getting outside those ranges, all of a sudden, things like enzyme functions start not working properly. All right. Um, when we go along later, if you ever see the suffix, A-S-E, A's. okay you know that you are looking at an enzyme okay ASE means it's an enzyme so they're usually appropriately named uh, for what it is that they're breaking down so for example a lipase is an enzyme that breaks down lipids a protease is an enzyme that breaks down Protein. A nuclease is an enzyme that breaks down nucleic acids. Uh, trickier one. An amylase? Uh, good guess, but no. An amylase breaks down starches, which are carbohydrates. Okay? So that's a trickier one. But you'll run into a bunch of those uh, later on. A's always means enzyme, though. Okay. <laughs> Next, oxygen carbon dioxide. <clears throat> So both of these are super important for a bunch of reasons. Let's talk about uh, um, a really basic kind of idea of what happens <laughs> in cells, because it relates back to this. So everybody got all these best accurates? For those of you with any kind of background, we're not going to get into glycolysis, or the electron transport chain, or Krebs cycle, or any of that stuff, mercifully. We're going to say that a cell is, for our purposes right now, a black box. Okay, And it's going to do a whole bunch of things called magic. Okay, For right now, what we're talking about is it needs to produce energy. So cells need energy in order to perform all their chemical reactions. So, the two basic things that every cell needs in order to, in, in, in uh, ideal circumstances, to create energy are what? What two things need to go into that cell to make it comfortably able to make energy?
1: Protons, neutrons.
0: I can't
2: hear you. Protons, neutrons,
0: electrons. Uh, a good guess, but no. What are things that we need to take into the body? in order to feed this. Oxygen is one, okay? So, oxygen.
2: Water?
0: Good guess, but no. You assume assume is already there. Uh, yes, we're on the right track, but in what form? What did I say earlier is the preferred fuel source for cells, specifically, glucose, good. C6H12O6, okay oxygen and glucose go into this black box, okay? Magic happens. And out comes energy in the form of ATP, which we're going to talk about in a couple of slides. Okay? That's separate, and the cell in the production of this energy makes two waste products. Okay? As a byproduct of this whole thing. Anybody want to take a stab at what those waste products are? Huh? Water is one. And we don't often think of water as a waste product, but in this context it is. And the second thing is perfect. Carbon dioxide. Yes. Yeah. Because I'm annoying, I'm going to balance that.
1: Oh.
0: I told you as a nerd, I'm not ashamed of it. That'll work. Point is oxygen and glucose go into the cell, make ATP. We'll talk about that later. The byproducts of that of that cellular metabolism, right? Sum total of the chemical reactions inside the cell, are carbon dioxide and water. Now, what happens if you take carbon dioxide and water and you start ejecting them from cells? They're going to get into Body fluids, right? The, the fluids outside the cells, and ultimately into the blood. And I was talking earlier about what happens when you add a whole bunch of carbon dioxide and water <laughs> into the blood. So this is going to happen in the blood. This is an equilibrium, right? So if I, I said this tries to exist in a balance, right? It's always in balance. So If I were to add more into this side of the equation, it will try to even itself out. So, it will turn from this into more of this. Right? Okay? So, something else we talked about earlier today. What do we we say is the environment? What's changing? What's going on? If you all of a sudden start doing something to the blood, it makes it so that there's a whole bunch more of this. Yep. All right. So you're just you've by so th- here's the point, right? So by adding carbon dioxide and water to blood, which is the normal resting state of what cells are doing all day long, okay? They're pumping out those two byproducts. You add those into blood, <coughs> and it's gonna naturally <coughs> try to drive your pH down because all of a sudden that carbon dioxide and water is becoming this which means there's more hydrogen in the blood and the more hydrogen there is in the blood the pH goes down so the normal kind of default state of the body as it's running its metabolism is to push the pH down okay so we have to have mechanisms in place to fix that all right so just a real brief aside because this is getting far too far into physiology but Tie it back around. Uh, the two mechanisms in the body that we have to regulate pH, two organ systems. Anybody know what they are? <laughs> no, not endocrine. There are two organs, two organ systems in the body that will regulate blood pH. I said it has to stay between seven point three five and seven point four five. You can't have it just dropping all the time because you're you're pumping out waste products that's one your kidneys so your kidneys can watch the air quotes decide to (laughs) pee out a whole bunch of hydrogen so if you do that and that's why urine is acidic by the way that means is removing this from the body and it's going to start driving your pH back up make sense the other mechanism is the lungs. Okay? Think of the lungs, we think of oxygen in. But What also happens is, when you exhale, you are breathing out two major things. Carbon dioxide and water. Right? You ever breathe on a mirror, a piece of glass, it fogs up? You're breathing out carbon dioxide and water. Which means that the more you breathe, the more you get rid of this stuff, it's completely gone from the body, you're offloading it. Which means the more you breathe, you're going to, again, take this stuff. It's going to come out of solution and turn into this, because we just got rid of this stuff in the body. So now we effectively got less hydrogen in the blood, so the pH goes back up. Again, that detail is not part of this class, but I want to make sure that we all understand why the hell we're doing chemistry in class today. Okay? It's all going to come around back full circle eventually. OK. <laughs> Last uh, class of, uh, of substances, then we'll take a bit of a break before we move on to the cell. <clears throat> nucleic acids. All right, so we had carbs, lipids, proteins, and our last one before ATP is nucleic acids. So the major nucleic acids we're talking about are deoxyribonucleic acid, or DNA, and ribonucleic acid, or RNA. Okay? Super, super important, um, because those are what make up the genetic material in our cells. Right, so in every cell of your body, you're going to have uh, what's called your genome, which is basically um, uh, um, a whole bunch of very, very long strands of DNA uh, that's organized in a particular structural way, which we're going to see in the next unit. Okay, But when you look as closely as you can at DNA, what you're going to see is it's this interesting double helix-shaped uh, molecule. So this actually, this is a better image right here. Double helix meaning it looks like two helices twisting around each other. Okay, the helix part like a staircase that's the backbone, and then these colored parts in the middle. Okay, those are what are called um, nucleotides. Okay, sorry, not nucleotides, organic bases. Okay, so organic bases are ultimately what are going to be the code. So when we say the DNA is a code or a blueprint that tells our body how to do everything and make everything that it is supposed to do, um, written into the order in which those uh, organic bases are placed in the DNA is a code that is going to ultimately code for everything that the body does. The details of that we'll get into later. Okay? But for now, nucleic acids, DNA and RNA, um, they're made up of these alternating uh, nucleotides. Okay? So a nucleotide is basically going to be in DNA a phosphate group sugar, in this case deoxyribose, hence deoxyribonucleic acid, and an, uh, a base. Okay? So these colorful bases, those are the parts that are facing inward. Those are the things that are ultimately going to be the code, quote unquote. Okay? So what really is important here is, uh, is those organic bases. There are only four of them okay, that are found in DNA. Uh, we have adenine, thymine, cytosine, and guanine. All right, so you have to memorize those. Just mark it down, okay? Adenine, thymine, cytosine, guanine. Now there's an important trait about them. When you find them in, in DNA, if we zoom in here, you can see that every time you have an A on one side, you're gonna have a T on the other side and vice versa. And every time you have a G on one side, you're gonna have a C on the other side and vice versa. Basically means that in DNA, Adenine will only bind to thymine. And thymine will only bind to adenine. And cytosine will only bind to guanine. And guanine will only bind to cytosine. So for now, that's all I need you to remember, okay, the fact that those are the, uh, the organic bases. There's only four of them. You need to remember what they are. You need to remember which one binds to which. For now, that's it. Okay? We will also learn in the next units about RNA. Okay? So RNA is very, very similar to DNA. It's called ribonucleic acid. The difference between deoxyribonucleic acid and ribonucleic acid is a molecule of oxygen. It seems like a subtle difference, but it is an important one. The other major difference is that RNA is single-stranded. So DNA is this double helix, right? Two helices wrapped uh, around each other. Um, RNA is basically a half of that. So it's one strand. Okay? We will Again, we'll learn some more details about that later. The last detail here is that RNA is, again, built in a very, very similar way to DNA, to DNA in that it has this backbone of sugar and phosphate, and then it has the nitrogen base. But the major difference is there is no such thing as thymine in RNA. Okay? It has the exact same four bases, except there is no thymine. Instead, what we have is something called the uracil. uracil. Okay? So the bases that are used in RNA, are A, U, C, and G, not A, T, C, and G. That's the only major difference. It's just something you have to memorize for now, and then we can move on. Okay? All right, last topic, then we'll take a bit of a break. Uh, denosine triphosphate, ATP, you're gonna hear this come up over and over in the context of energy. Um, when I said that <laughs> the preferred fuel source of cells is glucose, it's true, but what I really meant is that what the cell uses that glucose and oxygen for is to make ATP. And how it does that is complicated, and we're, it, we're not going to get into that in this class. It's beyond what we need. But the point is, the end result, the goal, is to make ATP. And the reason for it is because it's an easy source of usable energy. Okay? So adenosine triphosphate is sometimes compared to a battery. Okay? So you have <clears throat> adenosine and three phosphate groups, hence the triphosphate, okay? So energy, and then phosphate, phosphate. Well, here's the ATP over here. Phosphate, phosphate, phosphate. The relevance of this is, I said earlier, in chemical bonds they store energy, right? What kind of energy? It's either chemical energy or also called potential energy, okay? Because it's energy that's stored, energy that's used to hold those two molecules together. Right? But if you take that bond and you break it, it can release energy that can be harvested to use for something else. And that's kind of the magic of ATP. So what we do is we have this reversible reaction where we store molecules of ATP, adenosine triphosphate. And when we want to harvest energy from it, we'll break off that last phosphate, release the energy that was stored within that bond, and use it for something. That's our quick source of energy. Okay, We use it to power other chemical reactions. Then when we want to store more, we invest some energy by using preferably glucose in a complex mechanism to put that phosphate back on. And in doing so, we store more energy again. And you can do this over and over and over and over and over. Okay, So every time you take that last phosphate off, you can use that energy. It costs energy to put it back on, but again, it's, it's useful because it allows us a quick, useful form of energy. And that's it. So the real energy currency of the chemical reactions in the body is not glucose. It is ATP. Okay. So effectively, no ATP, no metabolism, no chemistry, no, not much of anything going on in the, in the physiology of the body. Once your ATP runs out, you are done. All right. So let's take a quick break. That is the end of the, of the chemistry unit. Uh, go to the bathroom if you have to. Come back 20 after, and we've got to get into the cell. You'll be fine. Uh, So the plasma membrane uh, is going to be essentially the boundary that creates the outside of the cell that protects it from everything around it and stops everything from within from getting out, sort of. All right. <laughs> but it, what it does is divide it in, into regions. So we now we're going to use some prefixes again that you've got to get used to, intra and extra. So intra meaning inside, extra meaning outside. So in, everything that's intracellular is inside the cell itself, everything that's extracellular is outside the cell. So the plasma membrane is what's called a semi-permeable membrane, which means what? What does permeable mean? Sorry, things can pass through. So, what does semi-permeable mean? Perfect. Some things can go through, and some things can't. So now we have to find out what exactly that means. What can cross, and why? Um, the other thing to, to remember is that the cell, being a barrier, is also going to, in a lot of, uh, sorry, in uh, in most circumstances, it's also going to create a membrane potential. So what this means is that the sum total of the um, electrical charge of everything inside the cell is gonna be compared with the sum total of the electrical charge of everything outside the cell. Okay? So in certain circumstances, the inside of the cell might be overall more positively or more negatively charged than the outside. Okay? And that doesn't necessarily matter for us right now. But where it does matter is when we learn about the nervous system and electrical conduction of action potentials and about how muscles work, uh, that will definitely matter. Okay? But for now, just understand that there is probably going to be a charge difference between what's inside and outside the cell, and the membrane maintains that. <clears throat> okay? So what makes up that membrane? These are things that we've talked about already today. About half-ish of the membrane is going to be made up of uh, lipids. And uh, half ish of proteins and a small percentage of carbohydrates. All right. Now, what kinds of lipids? These are ones that we learned about in the previous lecture. So, the the bulk of the membrane is going to be made up of those phospholipids that we learned about earlier. Okay. We've had the picture up on the board. It had the blue head, the phosphate head, and the two tails, the fatty acid tails. So the really important thing to recall from that, right, is that the phosphate head is hydrophilic, okay? Water attracting, okay, water-loving, right? The fatty acid tails, as you might expect, because fat doesn't mix with water, are hydrophobic, water-fearing, water-avoiding. Okay? So the basic organization of Of the cell membrane is what's called a phospholipid bilayer, two layer, right? So the basic idea is you're going to have these phospholipids with their phosphate head, their fatty acid tails, okay? And you're going to have two layers of them back to back. Okay? So you have all the fatty acid tails facing inward. Because fats interact with fats just fine? And the phosphate head's facing outwards. Now, remember that almost everything in the cell or in the body is bathed in water, right? So the inside of the cell, right, in the cytoplasm, it's right, all in here. It's drawn that it's a lot of stuff occupying the space, but all the empty space in between, that's all filled with what is effectively water, correct? So basically, you need, let's assume this is Inside, so intracellular, right? Intracellular. And if it's all water inside the cell, then you need this layer of that barrier to be hydrophilic, right? You need it to be attracted to water, be able to interact with water, right? And then everything else outside of the cell is also bathed in water, right? Okay? So. Um, if there's fluid outside the cells, we're gonna, it's called the interstitial fluid. That, that's the detail we're going to get into much, much later. Um, but basically, everything around all of our cells, there is fluid. It's not blood, it's just it's fluid. But it's also water-based. So it means the outside of that barrier that makes up the cell membrane also has to be water-attracted, hydrophil- uh, hydrophilic, okay, water-loving. So it makes sense that we have The phosphates, water-loving heads on both the outside and the inside and the fatty acid tails facing each other in the middle. Make sense? Okay, so now we have a barrier, okay, that's largely made up of fats. Now uh, about two-thirds-ish of the fats that make up a cell membrane are going to be these phospholipids. The other third is going to be made up of cholesterol, which you said is also uh, a lipid. It just looks different, okay? These guys here. Our cholesterol. I said earlier, cholesterol has a ring shape to it. That's what's special about its chemistry and why it's you know why we use it to build other things. So those are cholesterol. And cholesterol also has a somewhat hydrophilic end and a somewhat hydrophobic end. So it kind of fits in between these nicely, uh, and it makes up you know about a third of those fats. The mixture of the, uh, of the um, phospholipids and the cholesterol makes it so that there is uh, there are a few different types of molecules and it gives us um, what's called a fluid mosaic model of the, of the, uh, of the, um, of the plasma membrane. So it's not all uh, homogenous, it's not all just one type of molecule, there's stuff intermixed and it gives the cell uh, this ability to mold a little bit and be somewhat fluid and be made up of different things. Now, I uh, said so about half of the cell membrane is made up of fats, phospholipids, and cholesterol. About another half, 45% to 50%-ish, of the cell membrane, the bulk of it, to be made up of proteins. Now, this gets a little bit more complicated. So there are a bunch of different kinds of types uh, of proteins that can be embedded within the cell membrane. Okay, The first way we can classify them is whether they are integral or whether they are peripheral okay so the easiest way to remember that would be um, uh, and this this is uh, there's something wrong with this picture okay Um, integral proteins basically mean that they are embedded fully within that cell membrane and they go from one side to the other so all the way through okay peripheral protein means they don't go all the way through they're embedded within the membrane, but they only are exposed on one side. So there is a problem in this, uh, in this image here. These things, the red things that go all the way through, are integral proteins. This one here is a peripheral protein. Okay. Anyway, we don't need any more detail than that. That's totally fine for now. We're more interested in what they do. Okay. So there are various different functions that the proteins can do. They can act as markers. Okay, so they can identify the cell. Okay. Does anybody know um, what, uh, what a protein marker that exists on the out- outside of a cell that identifies it to the immune system, is called? No, that's okay, it's an intro class, just seeing where we're at. Okay. Has anybody ever heard the term antigen? I'm, s- I'm certain that you've probably heard the term, in some context, antibody. You know, it's sort of involved with the immune system. Okay, so the details of this are not the purpose of this class, but the general idea is um, your immune system basically uh, pa- is patrolling your body at all times. It's traveling around and it's identifying uh, cells, and it's 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 interacting with your own cells. And it's interacting with foreign cells too, like bacteria, and all cells are going to have. Um, Excuse me, are going to have antigens on the outside. They're basically like flags that identify them. Okay? And so, built into our DNA and in the creation of our own unique immune system, we have code that basically says this is what our antigens are going to look like. Okay? Uh, it's called your major histocompatibility complex, and it's in, important when you're doing tissue transplants and, and that kind of stuff. So, what matters is that your immune system is built based on these instructions, and it says, This is what your cells look like. Okay? Now go and explore. And if you run into anything that you don't recognize, kill it. All right? So, basically, if I'm an immune cell, I'm controlling the body, and I say, Here's a cell, hey, how's it going?
1: Trying to check out your antigen. I recognize you, you're cool. How's it going? Nice. <laughs> I know you, you're cool.
0: I don't know you. Time to that. Okay? So basically, and you mount an amount of immune response, and you start attacking and throwing everything you have at that thing that is not part of us. It's non self. So that means that we have to have these marker proteins on all of our cells that say self, 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 this belongs to me. Anything that's not that is not, does not belong. Exactly. Yeah, it's where your immune system fails to distinguish self from non-self, and your immune system runs into your, uh, an antigen of your own cell and identifies it as foreign and attacks it. And the only difference between various different autoimmune cells and their effects in the body is what tissue those antigens are attached to. So maybe it's um, a tissue of um, the lining of a joint capsule and rheumatoid arthritis. Now maybe it is Uh, cells of the thyroid gland and you get Hashimoto's or maybe it's all over the place and you get lupus so the only difference is where but yeah you're absolutely right okay (laughs) we also have so those are markers Um, we also have attachment proteins Uh, attachment proteins are except what they sound like Uh, cells need to be anchored to other cells okay they can't be free-floating at least certain ones can't so they need to be stuck together and there's various proteins that do that transport proteins we're going to get some more details on each of these. But transport proteins are, are going to be how we get stuff in and out of, this, of the cell. Okay? So we said the cell, the cell membrane uh, is a semi permeable membrane. Some things can get through, some things can't. Uh, and we want certain things to be able to get in and out of cells. But sometimes it's not easy. Sometimes they can't just go through a fatty barrier, because either they're not fat soluble, they're too big, or, or whatever. And so we need to essentially build proteins into the cell membrane that we can use specifically to move stuff in and out of cells. Uh, we have receptor proteins. Uh, receptor proteins will be things that are involved in the endocrine system. So uh, endocrine system is going to make hormones, chemicals in one part of the body that will float through blood and body fluids and, th- and bind a receptor that they match somewhere else in the body and, and create some kind of effects there. And then they can also be enzymes. We know what enzymes do. Um, enzymes can be free-floating. They can be inside the cell, outside the cell, or they can be bound to the wall or so the, the membrane of a cell, so that they're permanently embedded there and are just doing their job of catalyzing some kind of reaction. Okay. <coughs> so as I mentioned here, the marker molecules on the cell surface identify them uh, specifically to the immune system. Uh, They can be glycoproteins or glycolipids. Glyco means uh, carbohydrates. So basically you have a carb protein mix or a carb fat mix. Uh, I will not test you on that. Uh, Just they're for identification. Okay. Attachment. Again, uh, attachment proteins. um, I will not test you on the difference between cadherins and integrins. Okay. Attachment proteins are to attach cell to cell to cell to cell. (coughs) Transports. Um, Now this is where we get a little bit more complicated. So transport proteins, uh, by their definition, are going to be integral because they have to go from one, uh, from all the way from inside the cell to the outside. Um, And there's going to be some special things about them because they're not all the same. Um, They're going to have some kind of specificity. So for the most part, a transport protein is not just going to be for anything. It's not a highway where anything can just bomb through. Um, they're going to be somewhat specific, so a certain type of molecule, uh, a certain size, a certain shape, a certain charge are going to be able to move through a certain type of transport protein. That being said, um, they're not always absolutely perfectly specific, and so there can be competition. So for example, you might have a, um, a transport mo- uh, a, a uh, protein. Uh, let's make up an example. Uh, that is designed to move calcium okay, across, the, across the membrane. And Calcium is a, uh, has a charge of plus 2. Okay? Uh, and so that w- the way it's built, it works just fine. Calcium can flow as it will, back and forth. But you also have other ions in the body that are also plus 2, like magnesium. And so, uh, because the nature of that protein is it's, it allows plus 2 ions through, they compete with each other. So if there's more magnesium present, even though the the job of that transporter is supposed to be for calcium, magnesium can can interfere and and compete for that spot to get through. So there can be competition like that. Uh, The other thing is is saturation. So basically, when you're depending on transport proteins to move substances in and out of cells, the maximum rate at which that can happen is dependent on how many transport proteins there are. And and I can give you a good example of this. making it overly complicated. Um, we said last week, really, really briefly, what the kidneys do, what their basic job is. What is it? Good. It filters your blood. So that basically means what happens when you, when you, make, when you make urine is you filter the blood. So you pass it all through this big strainer called the glomerulus uh, and, you, and through this system of nephrons. And what you make is filtrate, which is blood-like but not quite blood. 99% of all that is going to be pulled back into the blood, okay? But the 1%, the waste products, the concentrated waste products are what are going to remain as urine and then we pee them out. Now, the important part is that, that pulling back, right? So we need the capacity to pull what we want to keep in the body instead of peeing out back into the blood. And, the, and how well we can do that depends on, are there enough transporters for it? And in most cases, all day long, that's perfectly fine. A good example uh, of where this goes awry is uh, in someone who has poorly managed diabetes. So um, in someone who's, who's, who's got diabetes, let's let's say, uh, say, uh, say it's type 2. Okay? So it's type 2 diabetes, and they have very, very high blood glucose levels, OK. Um, so that stuff's getting filtered through the kidneys at all times, right? And, and then everything including glucose is going to get pulled back into the blood. How much glucose should there be in urine? A little, a lot, zero, none. There should never be glucose in urine. If there is, something's gone wrong, and what's gone wrong is that in this case, the blood that was being filtered through the kidneys was so high in glucose concentration that it exceeded the number of transporters that the kidneys have to suck it back into the blood and the only other place it had to go was into the urine and so you peed out. So is it a
2: bad thing to be
0: always the uh, time? Uh, not necessarily. it oh, depends on context. So that's a that's a it's a hard question to answer. So I, I will, because I was talking about diabetes, uh, the three cardinal signs of an episode of poorly managed diabetes are uh, polyuria, polydipsia, or polyphagia. And that basically means you're hungry, you pee a lot, and you're thirsty. So in the context of someone who has diabetes and it's poorly managed, is it OK to pee a lot? No. But for an average person, is it OK to pee a lot? Well, it depends on how much you drink. It right? depends on, I mean, urine production is a balance. It's, it's fluid in, fluid out, and your body's trying to manage concentration. So there's no way to answer the question without context. All right? Anyway, sorry. OK, so we have transport proteins. There are three basic types, channels, carriers, and ATP-powered pumps. So <clears throat> channels are what they sound like. They're basically tunnels. Okay? So you have a channel that, uh, that, uh, that passes from one side of the plasma membrane to the other and allows things to go through. Now, does it always allow things to go through? Sometimes. Um, there are what are called leak channels that literally leak. And so they basically, uh, stuff like ions, can just pass right on through them. Okay? They'll move according to their concentration gradient. We'll talk about that next week. There are also channels that are called gated. Okay? So there's literally a gate or a barrier that may or may not prevent something from going through. Okay? It's like that arm in the parking lot. It goes up and down. Um, so there are certain things that can regulate whether that channel is open or close. Okay? Now, if this seems like too much detail, I understand. But this, again, is really important when we talk about the nervous system and how action potentials work. So, Things that can gate channels, that can determine whether they are open or closed. You can have what are called ligand-gated channels. Okay, (laughs) ligand-gated channels. That basically means there is a receptor. A ligand is something that's going to bind a receptor on that channel to allow it to open. Okay, it's a signal. It says when this this thing, when this substance, it could be a hormone, it could be uh, a chemical, it could be a pile of of different things, let's say it's a hormone. When and only when this hormone is present and is bound to this channel, it will stay open. And when it's not there, it'll be closed. Okay? So it's like a key. So only when the key's in the lock, it will open up, and when it's not, it'll stay closed. So that's a ligand-gated channel. There are also uh, voltage-gated channels. So I said earlier how on either side of the plasma membrane, there's going to be a particular electrical charge, Okay. voltage gated channels will open or close depending on what that charge is. So certain channels will open when, it's, when you hit a particular voltage and close when it's not, when it's at a different voltage. Again, very much related to how an action potential works. So the real quick Cole's notes is get the membrane potential to a certain point. And then all the channels open, and then all sorts of ions move through, and it basically creates this cascade of events that, that uh, perpetuates an electrical signal. OK. Next is a carrier protein. OK. A carrier protein uh, is basically um, uh, something where it's, uh, it's a protein. It's going to physically, it's, so it's not a channel. It's not a tube that stuff can float through, uh, like the previous example. Uh, it's going to be a protein that literally, physically changes shape to allow something to pass through it, OK? Um, so um, I am not going to go into any other detail on this. So you can actually, cro- this second paragraph here about uniport, symport, aniport, just cross that off. Okay. Just know that a carrier protein, it will allow something through by changing the shape of the, of the carrier protein. Good? OK. Lastly is an ATP, uh, ATP-powered pump, okay? So ATP-powered pump means that the pump only works, right? It only pushes something from one side of the membrane to the other if you use energy in the form of ATP to do so. So it costs energy in order to, uh, in order to make this happen, okay? So <laughs> the question is, why would you do this? Right? Why would you spend energy that's valuable that we need to use resources to, to harvest, to make, in order to push something across a membrane, when a lot of things will kind of move on their own? Well, uh, basically, uh, it, the thing you have to understand first is um, when chemicals move right in solution, when they're moving from one area to another, or it's especially obvious when they're moving from one side of a membrane to another, the natural tendency of, of of chemicals, independently, is to spread out as much as they can, to distribute themselves as far apart and as evenly as possible. So that basically means that if you have a barrier that's separating uh, two differently concentrated substances, okay, fluids. Chemicals that are dissolved in solution are always going to have a tendency to move from the area where they're most highly concentrated to the area where they are most less concentrated. That's a very poor sentence. It's getting late. Okay? So they'll always move from an area of high concentration to an area of relative low concentration. Always. Okay, That's the natural tendency. You're going to see this... This is an important idea. We'll review it next week. It's going to come up over and over and over. So, now that is naturally going to happen on its own. That's just what happens. Okay? If you see the body doing something like this, where it's taking uh, um, a transport protein and it's expending energy to pump something across a membrane, that can tell you basically one thing for sure. You're moving chemicals in the opposite direction of how they would normally move. You're moving them against your concentration gradient. Okay? Because chemicals will naturally move from an area of high concentration to an area of low concentration. They always do. It's just how they do. it's just how they operate. Okay? It costs no energy. They just do it. Okay? But if for some reason you want to maintain particular concentrations on either side of membranes, you have to put energy into it in the form of this kind of a pump. See, so we expend energy to go against the gradients. Okay, and we'll review this next week. And again, it's something that matters in the context of um, neurophysiology. Okay, that's more than enough for the day. Thank you for sticking with me and not falling asleep. Uh, I'll, put the, uh, I'll put the podcast up uh, probably later today or tomorrow. And uh, we'll see you all next week. Don't forget to do your online quiz.